All right. Luke chapter 19, if you want to have it open just for a reference point. Um, Luke chapter 19. All right, here we go. Let's review quickly. All right. We are looking at, we're trying to resolve the theological problem. And we've reduced this theological problem to a simple phrase. And that simple phrase is, we are justified by faith, but we're going to be judged according to works. It raises 9,000 questions. We've been talking about those 9,000 questions for it seems like 9,000 years. So we're not going to go back over all of those again. Um, We are utilizing a book called Four Views in regards to this subject. Uh, The Four Views books, they're they're for all kinds of different theological problems. Um, And we're utilizing this. However, we're kind of doing our own thing with it. And so far, we have seen that they have pointed... The first view... Let me do this. Let me open my notebook. The first view was what? What's the first view? Christians will be judged according to their works at the... Reward judgment, but not at the final judgment. That's their solution. Yes, we will all be judged according to our works. Christians will be at a rewards judgment, where lost people will be at a different judgment. For Christians, we will either receive reward or lose reward. Lost people, heaven, or well, hell, because obviously there's no chance for heaven for them. All right. Um, They point out that many Christians uh, teach that you have to persevere to be saved. Some believe perseverance is for reward, not salvation. And multiple scriptures seem to indicate that belief is all that is required for eternal life. Then they went to Luke chapter 19. They wanted to use a parable. They used verse 12 to 15 to try to make their point. We spent the last hour looking at the entire parable. And what did we discover in the parable? Let's summarize the parable. All right. In Luke chapter 19, do a quick summary of the parable. There's a nobleman. The nobleman goes into a far country to receive a kingdom. Prior to leaving, preparing to leave, he calls ten servants. And he gives each servant a pound. I misspoke in the last hour. Each, But we corrected it in the last hour, so hopefully... Hopefully, uh, everyone who listens to it will get that. All right. Everyone gets a pound, right? So he gives them their pound. He tells them to do what? To occupy, which means to work as a banker or a trader, right? So he leaves. They're told to occupy. They're each given their pound. He goes away. Finally, he returns. Well, while, while he's away, what happens? Citizens get together, send a message saying, We're not going to have you reign over us. We hate you. Stay away. All right. He comes back, in spite of the citizens not wanting him to, he comes back and he calls the servants together. Even though there were ten servants, we only read of three. Example number one, the first servant who was given a pound, he produced ten. And what is said to him? Well done. You were faithful. Now you get to have authority over how many cities? Ten. All right. The next servant, he got five. He is not. No, they, he does not. Is not told. Well done. He's just told. You get five. Then the third servant. He had one. He again. He he still has that one. He didn't do anything. He is called a wicked servant, and he loses the pound that he was given. Then the citizens are brought before the noblemen, and what happens to them? They are all killed. All right. And the simple interpretation of this, based off view number one, is that as Christians, we are servants. We have been given something. 
We are to use that for the furtherance and adding to the kingdom. Christ will return. We will be judged according to what we have done, but it has nothing to do with our salvation because even the wicked servant is not slain. He is simply loses his what he was given. The citizens are lost people and they're treated differently than the servants. So we, so, and then they use 1 Corinthians 3 to, just, to build upon this. So they use this parable to, to try to prove this point. Now, we're going to go to the Four Views book and let them offer their explanation of this parable and then see where else they go with it. Everybody ready? Jesus then recounts the story of three of these servants, each of whom had received the same sum of money. And we're told, do business till I come. The issue in the judgment is productivity, not belief. Can we all agree on that? It doesn't say anything about what they believe or don't believe. It's about their productivity. But only the servant who turned his one into ten hears, well done, good servant. Everybody agree with that? Look at Luke chapter 19, verse 17. Everybody see that? He received praise and is promised to rule over ten cities in the kingdom, since only those who endure will reign with Christ. All right? They, uh, they tell you to look at 2 Timothy 2.12. We can look at it just for reference sake, because we want to be fair to every view. At 2.12. All right. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will, he will also deny us. So I don't really know. I don't know if I would quote that in this, this point because that seems to make an argument. If we deny him, we could be denied. So that would make an argument of, like, I don't even... I, Losing your salvation. So I don't know if I would make a reference to that in this point, but that's okay. But note, they don't quote the verse. They just put it in parentheses, basically knowing no one's going to look it up. All right, yeah, because that's Christianity. All right, all right, here we go. Uh, We can be sure this first servant endured. I agree the first servant in Luke 19 endured, did he not? Given one, produced ten, and and he had produced it and was still there when... The nobleman returned. The second servant was half-hearted in his service. Though he could have produced ten, he only managed five. His half-hearted commitment leads to a lack of praise from his master. Rather than hearing, well done, he hears, you also will, will be over five cities. Look at Luke 19.19. 19. It's not said well done or anything. Okay. Uh, true. But I think the likewise is you're going to rule over cities. But maybe, maybe not. But whatever, we, we could, you know, that's one of those things we could dispute all day. Um, but he has given authority to reign with Christ in the age to come. Shows that he too endured. He endured to some point because he had five. All right. But clearly his effort was lacking. The third servant showed no profit and is given no cities to rule over. Rather than hearing good servant, he hears wicked servant. Luke 19, 22. Everybody agree with that? 
right? While some conclude that this servant represents an unbeliever, there are strong reasons for thinking otherwise, all right? Now, there are some who would come along, especially in the lordship view, and say the third one was lost, never was saved, all right? They're going to argue against that. This is what they say. Number one, scriptures occasionally uses disparaging language to describe believers elsewhere. Jesus' disciples are described as wicked. They, go to, they, they say Matthew 7, verse 11. Let's look at it. Matthew chapter 7, we'll start in verse 7. Sermon on the Mount, correct? Verse 7, ask and it shall be given you, seek and you shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. Clearly that seems like that would be speaking to Christians, correct? Yes? All right. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you whom, whom if his son asks bread will give him a stone, or if he asks a fish will give him a serpent? If you then being evil, right, uses the same... Uh, Greek word, I think it's the same Greek word that's used for wicked in Luke 19. I'd have to verify that. They point out that it's the same Greek word. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But obviously it makes a reference there that believers are, can be called what? Evil. All right, that's the point. All right, look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 8. Yeah, that one's not much help. All right, well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we read here, we had a lawsuit among uh, about, you know, if you have a lawsuit against another believer, you know, you should bring it to the church. Um, it says, don't go, um, but brother goeth to the law with brother and that before the unbelievers. Verse 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, therefore, there is utterly a fault among you because you go to law one with another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, ye do wrong and defraud and that your brethren. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So, yeah, I don't understand why they quote this one. They try to argue that Christians are being called unrighteous in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, but that would make absolutely no sense at all. I, I don't, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, maybe, I don't know, but that, what, what does verse 8, what does the next verse say? No, you not that the unrighteous shall not. Inherit the kingdom of God. Like literally, that would be a horrible argument to make. I don't know why they quote that. That's again, this is what happens. You read these books, they quote us, they, they give you a reference. They don't quote the reference uh, with the assumption that you're not going to do what? Look up the reference. Right? The Hebrew Christians um, were referred to as dull of hearing. Look at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. I could have done a lot better job finding verses that spoke negatively of believers, but Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, all right, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. All right, that's actually a good one, okay? That's an actually a good one. Yes, 
Uh, believers can be dull of hearing. And we won't read this one because we all know it. Um, what does he refer to the church of Laodicea as? Revelation 3.16, that they are lukewarm. Everybody right? Okay. Um, now, there's also a threat and, and, and that they could be spewed from his mouth. So I don't know if you want to quote that one. As, I don't know if you want to quote that one or not. So, so far, they're not doing a very good job improving their point. They're actually doing a really poor job, okay? Obviously, Christians can fail to endure, fall away, and prove to have been wicked. However, salvation is based on faith in Christ, not faithful service for Christ. Therefore, we should not doubt this third servant's salvation simply because he is called wicked. All right? That's their argument. I will say this. Can, are Christians referred to in some very negative ways in 1 Corinthians? Absolutely. You cannot get around that. And plenty of other passages. Agreed? So, my main, my main argument would be this. Clearly, the servants are treated different, differently than the citizens in the parable. Everyone can agree with that. Yes? That would be my argument. Um, I wouldn't be quoting scriptures that actually co- contradict my argument. Um, so we will blame the lack of skill on the author here, not on the argument. Does that make sense? Okay. That's just, that's, that's really bad. That's, that's embarrassing that that gets published in Christian books. But this is the garbage you find in Christian books all the time. I'd rather read books written by lost people. Okay. But, because, I mean, this is just embarrassing. They're, they're literally quoting scripture references that disprove their point. That's, okay. Second, here's their second argument. The third servant is not part of the group that hated the nobleman. Jesus clearly makes a distinction between the servants who received the ten, who received a ten, or, or each servant received one, and the citizens who hated the nobleman. Take note, the third servant is called a servant, not a citizen. Furthermore, he does not call himself a servant. Jesus calls him a servant. That is quite telling. The citizens who hated the nobleman represent un, uh, unbelieving Israel, while the servants who received money represent believing disciples. Okay, I don't know if they represent unbelieving Israel or not. That's a major jump in interpretation. But there is a distinction. Can everyone agree with that? All right. Third, Jesus uses a reflex, reflexive pronoun to emphasize the fact that all three of these servants belong to the nobleman. So calling ten of his own servants, he gave to them ten. Look at Luke 19.13. He refers to these servants as his own. Do we agree with that? I believe. And he called his ten servants. All right, they belong to him. Now, that's true. That's true, all right? Fourth, the judgment of the third servant stands in marked contrast to the judgment of the citizens who hated the nobleman. The third servant loses his pound, uh, is taken from him and given to the servant who had ten, uh, meaning that he will not rule with Christ in the age to come. However, this servant does not suffer the fate of the unbelievers, but bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Luke nineteen twenty-seven. Everybody see that? Significantly, the third servant is not slain as the enemies are. Now they quote some other commentaries. One commentary agrees that the distinction between the third servant and the enemies is significant. The story finishes on a note of frightening severity. Those who rejected the nobleman are sent and sent their, uh, their messenger after him are not forgotten. Safely installed in the kingdom and with accounts with his trading partners finalized, the nobleman commands the destruction of those he calls plainly 
these enemies of mine. They have set themselves in opposition to him. They must take the consequences. Others imply uh, that all of Jesus' servants are safely installed in the kingdom since he does not put the third servant in the same category as Jesus' enemies. I agree. There's no problem with that. Even clearer on this importance of this distinction is another commentary. They state this. Even though the action taken towards the disobedient servant was severe, as it will be on the day of judgment for unfaithful Christians, there is no hint in the text that the salvation of the faithless servant of the Lord was in jeopardy. Not so for the enemies of the nobleman. Christ, according to verse 27, uh, uses uh, the phrase, however, seems to contrast the punishment of the unprofitable servant with that of the master's enemies who did not want him to rule over them. All this suggests that the first judgment of the servant, now listen carefully, this is the key point they're going to make. You ready? All this suggests that the first judgment of the servant is the judgment seat of Christ, while the second judgment of the enemies is the great white throne judgment. At the first judgment, believers are judged according to their works to determine their rewards. I'll stop right here. Okay. Now, this is where we get into the major issue for this view. What is critical? What is view number one? Let's make sure we're on the same page. What is view number one? Yeah, let's read it how it was stated. All right. Christians will be judged according to their works at the rewards judgment, but not the final judgment. They are now identifying the two judgments. What do they call the rewards judgment? The judgment seat of Christ. What do they refer to the judgment of unbelievers? The great white throne judgment. You may want to write these down. What do they identify the rewards judgment as? Judgment seat of Christ. What do they refer to as the judgment of unbelievers? Great white throne judgment. Everybody got that? What is supposedly supposed to happen at the judgment seat of Christ? Believers will be judged to determine their faithfulness and what will happen, what will be determined? Reward or loss thereof. What happens at the great white throne judgment? Eternal damnation for unbelievers. Now they're going to quote a whole lot of scriptures here. Everybody ready? Are ready to turn fast? First, go to the book of Romans, chapter 14. We're going to go to the book that started the whole problem, correct? All right. No, they're just quoting them right now. They're just, they got them listed. I don't know what's going to happen with them. We're going to determine. The difference is we're not just going to look at them. We're going to do what? We're going to actually look. I mean, we're not going to just say, hey, these passages prove something. We're going to read them to determine what's actually. Because so far, their, their, their track record in quoting scripture is not very good. Agreed? Right? So, we're going to see what they have, right? Romans chapter 14. Now, we may end up... Now, this, this is dangerous 
Because now we could end up with a verse that's going to detour us for another six. We're never going to finish Romans chapter 2, verse 6. We're going to be here for 9,000 years. But I'm not going to do what the other churches do. It's just embarrassment. I mean, you, you, don't, you don't learn anything that way. Romans 2, 6 should bother every person who's ever read the Bible. And if it didn't bother you, you didn't read. And if you can go to a church that says, don't worry about it, then, then, I, then I give up. I just, give, I just throw out all of Christianity and let's just go home because there's no point. I mean, you've got to, you, if a pastor's going to preach Romans 2, 6, it's their responsibility to help figure it out. And that's why I warned you before we started Romans, y'all think it's going to be fun. And what did I tell you? Told you it wasn't going to be fun because I knew what was coming. Okay, I knew, I knew at some point we were going to get to the chapter that I did not, I wanted to skip Romans 2. I wanted to just go to three. Okay, just be, uh, I, I was like, what, who's talking? All right. It's someone's phone. Okay, all right, here we go. Yeah, I was like, what's going on? All right, here we go. Let's read the Bible. Okay, good. They, they'll read it better than me, so maybe we'll use them. Okay, all right, here we go. Romans chapter 14. Let's look at this and let's see what happens. Romans chapter 14, verse 10. Everybody ready? But why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set at naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of... Ooh, stop right there. We have actually called... Oh, that's good, all right? Now, what do they say will happen? For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account to himself to... Now, look carefully. This is very important. Um, If we look at the context here, why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set it not thy brother? This seems to be talking to Christians and saying that we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and we're going to give what? An account. So everyone has to believe we're going to give an account. Now, here's the thing. If we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, clearly the account can't be dealing with our salvation, right? It'd have to be dealing with what? Something else. That's why they make a reference to this passage of Scripture. Everybody got that? Yes? They, they cite 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We've already read 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're not going to read it again. Everyone knows what happens in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, do, do they give a name for the judgment in 1 Corinthians 3? That may be something to look at, just to make sure. If they called it the same thing, that would be awesome, wouldn't it? I don't believe they do. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm, I'm, I'm skimming, so give me a second. No. No, they do not. But what happens in 1 Corinthians 3? It sounds like believers who have built on the foundation that Christ has laid, their works are going to be built, are uh, going to be judged. And if your works are gold, silver, etc., they last. And if they don't, wood, hay, and stubble, they burn up. However, what will happen if they're burned up? You still will be saved. All right? Everybody agree with that? All right. They go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh-huh. Okay, well. 
Yeah. Imagine that. The NIV is not like all the others. <laughs> but but that, that, that could be a, an interesting point, but, at the, uh, but that's something we'll have to work on at a different time, all right? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, but it's good to note. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, everybody in verse 1. Here we go. Everybody ready? Let a man, let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be, be found faithful. Now stop right here. Right? If you think about it, he's referring to himself, but in some ways Christians are stewards of the mysteries of God and we are all to be found faithful. Right? Agreed? But uh, with me, it is a very small thing that I should be uh, judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not my own self, for I know nothing by myself, yet I am not hereby justified. But, that, but he that judgeth me is the, is the Lord. Everybody see that in verse 4? Now, why is that critical? Because Paul's acknowledging that he's going to give, he's going to be judged by the Lord. That's a judgment. All right. Verse five. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who uh, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God. What's that making an argument? There's going to be a judgment. Who's he referring to? He's Christians who's talking to the church of Corinth, right? Okay, all right. So there's going to be a judgment. All right, how about 1 Corinthians chapter 9? We're going to go through these as fast as we can. They've got a lot here, so. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Know ye not that they which run a race run all, but one receiveth the prize, so run that you may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible crown. Right? That's the implication, correct? Some do it for a corruptible crown, we do it for an incorruptible crown. Therefore run, so not as uncertain as uncertainty, so fight I not as one that... Uh, uh, beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Making an argument that we do what we do in order to receive an incorruptible crown. All right. Now, are you going to say that incorruptible crown is salvation? If you say it's uh, salvation, then what are you arguing? That you're going to work to get the salvation, which then would go against salvation by Grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. This would make an argument, we do what we do to get a incorruptible crown. Does that make sense? Yes? No? Okay. I hope so. All right. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Say amen when you're there. Wherefore, we labor... That whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Does the NIV use judgment seat of Christ there? Are you ready? Second Corinthians five nine or five ten. Okay, they call it judgment seat of Christ. All right, so far so good. Okay, what were the two ones they gave us at the beginning? Judgment seat of Christ and the white throne. Remember that? 
<clears throat> all right, now, we've got, a, we've got one passage that all translations agree on, judgment seat of Christ. The first, the first one that King James calls the judgment seat of Christ in Romans, correct? All right. Now, what does it say about the judgment seat of Christ? That every, for we, we must all appear. Now, that we seems to include Paul, would be possibly refer to Christians, agreed? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. There's still a judgment according to works, but if it's a judgment according to believers, then this would be determining what? Reward. 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 So far, so good? Yes, no? All right. Then First uh, John chapter 4. First John chapter 4, that we'll want us to look at verse 17 to 19. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear, uh, fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Right? Now, that one is not a lot of help. I think it's seeming to imply what? That we have nothing to fear of judgment. Right? Now, we would have something to fear of judgment if judgment is determining what? Our salvation. I think that's kind of the implication they're making. I'm not saying that's the best verse to make it, but that seems to be. All right? Now, that's all the verses they quoted there. Those verses are used to determine... What are they using those verses to try to prove? That we as believers will stand before Christ at the judgment seat of Christ to receive either reward or to lose reward. And that we shouldn't fear this judgment because even if everything burns up, we will be saved. But it should motivate us to do what? To work. All right? Yes? No? That seems to be the implication from all of those passages. All right. Now, what's the second judgment? Great white throne, right? Now, where do we read about the great white throne? Book of Revelation. Everybody know where? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I got to know these things. Yeah, Revelation 20, yes. All right, Revelation chapter 20. Everybody there? Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. And why is it called the great white throne judgment? Verse 11, and I saw a great white throne. <laughs> Ooh, that's pretty clever, huh? And a great white throne. And him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Whoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. All right, this is a judgment that will determine those who go to hell. All right, this one seems pretty Pretty straightforward, all right? Agreed? All right, now let's read what they have to say. 
At the second judgment, unbelievers are judged according to their works to determine the, now they say to determine the degree of eternal torment. Now, I'm not a fan of that idea, right? Because I don't think the text argues, and how do you even determine? The text doesn't give you, if you do these things, you get the worst degree, and if you do other things, I mean, what's the degree? If you're going to be thrown into the lake of fire, what's the degree? I mean, if you're in the lake of fire, well, I only get, what? I only burn for, what, 80% of the time? Like, what, what? I don't even understand. So I'm not a fan of that. But I will say this. Are they judged according to their works? Yes, Revelation 20 is clear about that. Now, let's make something very important. This is very important. Does anyone have a problem that lost people are judged according to their works? No one should have a problem with lost people being judged according to their works, right? Why? Okay, I said so. But from a logical standpoint... They don't have anything else, right? right? They're, law, they're unbelievers. They don't have anything else, right? Agreed? Christ didn't die. We, they don't have the covering of, of the sacrifice of Christ upon them. So they're left with just their works, which seems to indicate that their works would not be sufficient, right? Agreed? And the main reason it wouldn't be sufficient is because they don't have belief in Christ, which is obvi- obviously the foundational principle of salvation. Yes? For God so loved the world, that gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, you got to believe. All right. The first judgment concerns only believers, but not their eternal destiny, which has already been decided. They will not come into judgment. They re- reference John chapter 5, verse 24. All right. John chapter 5, verse 24. We can look at it. Just remember, they don't have a good track record. They did, they did better in that part, did they not? They did much better there. Five is John, the Gospel of John. John chapter five, verse twenty-four. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believe, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Now shall not come into condemnation. That makes it. That seems to make it clear that there cannot be any condemnation which would mean that any judgment according to works cannot determine what? That seems to be the implication here so far. So far, so good? All right. This parable, now they go back to the parable. Which parable? Luke chapter 19, right? This parable shows that believers and unbelievers will appear at separate judgments. Once the servants are judged, the nobleman asks that his enemies be brought to him to be slaughtered. Thus, servant judgment precedes enemy judgment. We should not miss the fact that the third servant escapes being slain. This indicates that perseverance is not a condition for final salvation. However, perseverance is a condition for ruling with Christ. Now, I'm not going to say that it's a condition for ruling with Christ. I would say it's a condition for reward. Now, remember, just reading that, That statement right there is super controversial. All right? Does everybody understand that? Westminster Confession of Faith disagrees with that. London Baptist Confession of Faith disagrees with that. Basically, every confession of faith that's ever been written disagrees with that. Because almost every Protestant confession of faith claims what is required. 
Perseverance, 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 perseverance. I will argue if you make perseverance a requirement, you're literally then claiming... You can't say I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, and then say this is requirement because that makes this not alone. All right? Now, what drives me crazy is that many, uh, I mean, I listen to a lot of sermons from the churches doing this. The people who try to argue for the more lordship kind of perseverance way, they almost ignore that conflict. You're like, there's a conflict. Remember when we read what Luther tried to do? Do you need works to be saved? Well, he tried to say no. Then he said, well, you have to have works because if you don't have works, it proves you're not saved. And then they were like, well, then that's not salvation alone. It's like, well, okay, if you don't have any works, you better at least believe. Okay, well, what does that mean, Luther? I, I need more than that, right? And if perseverance, and make sure this is understand, if perseverance is a requirement, then can Bobby have assurance today? No. Then he was never saved. He could persevere for 20 years, but if he doesn't make it to the end, so the only way he's going to know that he's saved is at the end. That goes in. This is making, I mean, this is a radical, I want to make sure, you understand, this is radical. Let me read it again. This indicates that perseverance is not a condition for final salvation. However, perseverance is a condition for ruling with Christ. That's, now, I don't know, I'm not going to get into the whole ruling with Christ thing, because that gets into millennial kingdom, that gets into eschatology. There's no, let's not, let's not you know, make the problem more complicated than, than it is. Right? That's a radical approach. Right? What can we say? This does help resolve some of the problem, though, doesn't it? Hey, the great white throne, unbeliever? Uh, believers. Now, if we can pull that off, Good, but we, we got to see, all right? Now, let's see what else they go on here. When eternal life comes to the believer as a gift, the same cannot be said of rewards. According to Paul, Christians are to work hard to win the prize. 1 Corinthians 9.24, we read it, right? They, they talk about the Greek word here. is an award for exceptional performance, prize, award. It comes to those who compete, Fighting and running are vital athletic illustrations. As, Paul, as Paul's execution drew near, he confidently declared that he had run well and would soon obtain the crown of righteousness. Remember, uh, look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Man, we need like five hours to work this out. Okay. That's okay, we're getting somewhere. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, Paul speaking, For I'm ready to be offered at the time of my departure is at, and, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but to all them also that love his crown of righteousness. Now, is that a crown? How do we understand that? What is he going to give me? Well, clearly this has to be something, if we believe that, uh, remember the idea of justification, that in justification we are imputed the righteousness of Christ? That can't be that. So then is it a crown? Well, we believe it to be a crown, then this is something separate than our salvation. Agreed? 
Yes? No? Okay. All right. But he was not so confident some 10, ten years earlier. Now, please now read what he says here. He seemed confident there. Agreed? All right. But he was not so confident some 10 years earlier when he penned 1 Corinthians. He realized he would need to discipline his body and bring it into subjection if he was to avoid being disqualified. 1 Corinthians 9.27. Remember we read that? It's like, I'm going to bring my body into subjection unless I fall away, unless I'm disqualified. He wasn't as confident then, but when he got to the end of his life, he was confident he was going to receive a crown. Right? We must be clear on this. Salvation is a free gift that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Now they're going to give us a whole bunch of, of passages to read. Ready? Everybody ready again? Romans chapter 4. See how many times we're going to Romans? See? Now I want you to know, this is, this is what is so difficult. Romans, it, Romans is the thing that created the problem, is it not? Yes, Romans 2.6 created the problem. But Romans is where you're going to try to find all, and every view is going to quote Romans. <laughs> every view is going to quote Romans, which is even going to make it more complicated. All right? But we'll see what this one does. Right? First Cor- uh, Romans chapter 4. Well, yeah, I mean, they're, 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 they're just re, they're trying to continue to make their argument. They're still making their argument. What, the part of their argument is we're not going to be judged according to works for our salvation because salvation is a free gift. Yeah, they're just building on their, their, their argument. All right, Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What shall we say then? That Abraham, our father, is pertaining to the flesh, hath found... Or what shall we say then? Uh, what shall we say then that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath wherefore to glorify, but not before God. Right? In other words, if Abraham was justified by works, who could he justify in front of? Who could he he boast in front of? Who could he uh, glory in front of? Yes, he could. He could, he could, he could, or people. Look at how good I am. Look at how good I am. All right. For what saith the scriptures? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Um, now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. That seems to be making a point, right? If you, if you got rewarded for doing it, then it would be out of debt. Right. Even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without work, saying, Blessed are these who, those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. All right. They're trying to make an argument that we are justified apart from works. It is what? A gift of God. Not something we do. All right, they're going to quote Galatians 2. Let's go to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians 2.16. Everybody there? I'll go as fast as I can. I know it's a lot of scripture, but we're, we're, being, we're going to be fair. We're going to be fair with the views, right? 2.16. 
knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we hath believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for the by works of the law shall no flesh be. All right. That would seem to, if this, if Galatians 2.16 is correct, then what is not required for justification? Okay, let me say it again. If, if Galatians 2.16 is true and we're reading it correct, what is not required for justification? Works. What is not required? So if you make an argument that no, 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 works are going to prove you're saved, if you say they're going to prove you're saved, you're making it a requirement to be saved. They're arguing, no, 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 no. Works have nothing to do with your salvation. What are works going to determine? Reward. They're very good. That's the argument. And so they're trying to drive the point home. How are you justified? By faith. How are you justified? And are you going to be judged according to works? Yes. To determine what? You see how they're trying to fix it? You see how they're trying to fix it? Yes? You see how they're, they're doing... They're do, I think they're doing a, a halfway decent... Now, are there some scriptures they can't answer? No. But if we go to the other scriptures, those can't answer all these scriptures. Now you see the, the dilemma? All right, you see the dilemma? All right, go to Ephesians chapter 2. We all know this one, right? Okay, we'll go to Ephesians 2, 5. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved. Verse 8, for by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We are to do good works, but we are not justified by those works, and if you make those works a requirement, then you're not saying that we're saved by faith alone. But you can make those works a requirement for what? Reward. Because a reward is re- being rewarded for what you do, or you or lose the reward by what you do not accomplish. So far, so good? All right. Um, man, we're going to run out of time. All right. We're going to stop here. We're going to stop reading scriptures because now we're going to, I, want to sum, I want to have the time to summarize it. If I keep going, my summary will take us till two in the afternoon. Okay, so we need to summarize this. All right, let's, everybody ready? Okay, here we go. Now, what is our theological problem we're trying to resolve? Remember, I gave everyone a phrase. If you want to, if you want to, if this is a good chance if you want to rewrite your notes to summarize everything, this is a good time to do so. What is the theological problem we're trying to resolve? Justified by faith. Judged according to works. That is the teaching of the Bible. You cannot be denied. Agreed? Okay. To resolve this problem, can you do it in 34 minutes? Can you do it in a week? Can you do it in a month? No! Okay, it's going to require some work because there's a bazillion scriptures that have to be considered, okay? So what we've decided to do is we're taking a book called Four Views, looking at four different views to resolve said problem. So far, we've spent now multiple hours on one view, okay? Just think, multiple hours on one view, all right? 
So view number one is what? Everyone state view number one as it was written. Christians will be judged according to their works at the rewards judgment, but not at the final judgment. All right, everybody got that? Okay. To make this argument, they have established this. They use a parable in Luke 19. In this parable, what do we learn? There's a nobleman, right? He's going to go away to receive a kingdom. Before he leaves, he calls his servants together, and he gives each one of them a pound, right? Everybody got that? Each one has a pound. He leaves. While he leaves, the citizens, not the servants, the citizens are like, don't come back. We hate you. We don't want you to rule over us. He still comes back because you can't stop Christ. Yeah, you can't stop him from returning. He comes back with his kingdom and he's like, okay, guys, I'm back. Servants, come here. What did you do? And we get three examples. Servant number one, who was given a pound, he has, good job, good job. Come on in. Here you go. Rule over 10 cities. All right. Then he calls Brenda. All right. What do you got? I got five. I'm not going to say good job, but all right, you get, you get five. And then he calls in Joel. Right? Joel. Yeah. You haven't done anything. Okay, I know, I know. That's why I used him as the example. Okay, hey, you haven't done, you haven't done your homework. You haven't done anything. You haven't done anything. You haven't accomplished anything. Give me that. Give it back. And he comes there and gives it to Bobby. Because Bobby had been working, Joel hadn't done anything. Right? Hey, right. and then so, but he doesn't say you can't. He doesn't kick him out. He doesn't, you know. But then, there, and I won't use this person as an example because this could be greatly offensive. Okay, the, uh, He calls the enemies. And the enemies are like, we don't want you to rule over us. And he has them killed. The theological argument made is servants are Christians. They get judged for works to get reward. Citizens are lost people. And they will be slain and they will face eternal damnation. Two different judgments. The book identified these two judgments by what terms? The first judgment for believers is called judgment seat of Christ. And the judgment for unbelievers is called great white throne. Now, I will agree the great white throne judgment, let's be fair, didn't really indicate anyone going to heaven. Agreed? Yeah, you've got to figure out what John is talking about. But in Revelation, it doesn't really indicate, right? Would everyone agree? All right, uh, let's look it back. Let's look it up one more time. Stephen's not so sure. We'll make sure. No, because this is an important point. Because this may reduce one, one of the major problems, correct? All right, Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God and the books were open and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of these things which were written in the books according to their works. 
and the sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. Now, if that's hell as hell, well, then obviously that's not any saved people. Now, if that's the grave, as some people, and that gets into a whole argument over how to translate it, right? Uh, death were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Whoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, you could argue, well, that, that's, is that implying that some were found in the book? You could read it that way, but it could argue this, this just demonstrates to these people they're not in there. It doesn't appear so. I, I, at least there's grounds to, to interpret it that way. Agreed? All right. So this would imply that these two judgments, that the believers are going to be at the judgment seat of Christ, unbelievers are going to be at the great white throne. At the judgment seat of Christ, what's going to occur? Reward for service, for work done, for how you lived your life. For the unbeliever, nothing. They go on to try to greatly establish that the Bible seems to emphasize more than once that what is the basis of our justification? Faith. Remember we started looking at all those scriptures? The Bible seems to imply multiple times that we are justified on the basis of what? Not according to works. If you put works somewhere needed, you're destroying the, the concept. Agreed? All right, now, we'll end with a very practical message, right? A very practical message based off this view. We're we're not being dogmatic on this view yet. I have to preach the view and be fair to the view, but we have to. And I want to make sure you understand, this is how it's so easy for the average Christian just to get confused because all you got to have someone is present a view in a very dogmatic, convincing way and you will leave church believing I'm going to try to present all of them convincing. But if there's a problem with one, I'm going to point it out. But let's at least go. Let's say, for argument's sake, this view is correct. All right? Everyone in this room who claims to be a Christian has to be prepared for this. You're going to stand before God. And you're going to give an account for what you have done with what you've been given. So you need to ask yourself, what have you done with what you have been given? And this week, we saw a very powerful example. Literally, I had to almost pull the car over when I heard it. um, Of someone who at least claims to be a Christian who was doing something pretty powerful with what they've been given. I don't know if the person is a Christian or not a Christian, but they use Christian terms. Everyone know about the case in Dallas, Texas, of the uh, police officer who walked into an apartment thought it was the wrong apartment, and or thought it was her apartment, found another man in there, shot the man, killed him dead. Uh, her trial was this, this week, last week, and she was found guilty. She was given 10 years. Now, there's lots of arguments. She should have been given more, but there's different ways the jury could go. I understand how that works. Okay, whatever. The brother of the man who was killed was in the court. And he stood up and he told her, and I'm paraphrasing, I forgive you. You should trust in the Lord. And he asked the judge if he could give her a hug. Now this is the woman who killed her, his brother. And you see the pictures of him, the judge allowed him to give her a hug. 
Now, that is the epitome. Again, I don't know what this man believes or doesn't believe, but he mentions, I think he mentions the name Lord Jesus Christ. But everyone in this room, if you're a Christian, you have been given forgiveness. And we are to, to forgive. Not in order that we can be saved. Not even in order to prove we are saved. But we do so because we are Christians and that's what we should do. And we will give an account for what we have done with what we have been given. Now that was a powerful, when I heard the audio of it, I was, like, I was in the car and they were playing it on the news and I, was, I almost had to pull over. I was like, whoa, man, I don't know if I could do that. Yeah. Yeah, and then I watched the video, and then I was like, whoa, I don't even know if I could do it. I mean, I'm just going to be honest. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, gonna per, per, I'm not even pretending to be as godly as that. But that, that's, the, that's the issue. As Christians, we've been given, we are to do something with what we have been given, and we're going to give an account. Now, we've got other views to argue whether that comes into play with my salvation or not my salvation, but this view is arguing, I was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. My works has nothing to do with my salvation, but they will be held, I will have to give an account for them. I'm going to have to stand before God. He's going to like, look, I gave you, and what did you do? Which should bother us because we're going to be... Now, what, some Christians will have the attitude, well, I'm just going to go to heaven. Who cares? You've got to be careful with that attitude because you're standing in front of the one who died to save you. Hopefully you care enough about the one who died to save you that you will do something with what you have been given. That's a powerful, powerful message for all believers. Now, someone will use it as, hey, you're proving you're not saved. Okay, well, then that makes my salvation based on what I do. This keeps it where? My salvation is based on... What he did, and based on what he did, I shouldn't be motivated to do something. And if I don't, I will have to give an account. Now, we'll finish this view tonight, and we'll go on to view number two. All right? Now, right now, you're probably thinking, view number one sounds really good. If you don't think view number one sounds really good, I hope you got a better idea. (laughs) Okay? Because at least this one accounts for what? Justified by faith alone, this one can emphasize alone. This one can literally emphasize. The other ones won't be able to emphasize alone. This one literally can stand there, but it can also account for what's the only thing it can account for right now. It seems that Revelation 20 doesn't create a problem. Romans 2 creates a problem, and John 5 creates a problem. But there's 900 other verses that's more in accordance with it. If I throw this one out, I may be able to account for John 5 and Romans 2, but I won't be able to account for the, how many other verses that we've looked at. Yeah, I'm not going to be able to account for that. No one view is going to be able to account for all verses. Everybody understand that? Yes? If you, if you believe in the deity of Christ, you have a hard time accounting for some of the verses that, you know, uh, what, did you, uh, what does Jesus say? About the day and the hour that he will return? What, he didn't know? I thought he was God. Now, how can the Son not know what the Father knows if they're both God? 
Now, in other words, that's a hard verse to understand. Now, we don't destroy the deity of Christ because of that verse, right? We have to go with the other scriptures and say, okay, I can't quite explain it. Now, we could explain it that he was only referring to he didn't know in his flesh, right? And he, but but I, even, that's hard to prove from the text. There's all kinds of scriptures that do that, right? right? Because sometimes you're like, well, there's one God, but if they're all God, then that three gods... Oh, how do I reconcile this, right? Sometimes it's difficult. You've got to go with the best that you can come up with. So just make sure we keep that in mind as we work through these views. We've got to account for as much as we can account for, and what we can't account for, guess what, we have to acknowledge. You cannot do what that sermon did that I posted on the app, which is basically, don't worry what Paul said, or even worse, they implied that what Paul said, he was only, it was only hypothetical, it was only kind of saying, hey, hey, Bobby, you know, if, 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 if God was to judge you according to your works, you wouldn't be saved. That's not how Romans 2.6 is written. As Sarah pointed out, there'd be specific words used if it was hypothetical. If. No. He says, this is how it's going to happen. So I think we've done, we've done a pretty good job. But make sure you're here tonight because we are gonna, we're going we're gonna to try to move on to view number two. We're going to finish view number one finish, and move on to view number two. But we're going to give each view it's fair treatment. All right, we're going to be fair. Now, we may start view two, and you may be like, that's dumb. Okay, but we got to finish it, right? Yes? Remember when we were looking at all the different views about the, uh, about the covenant with Israel? We went through, what, seven views? It took like eight years, and y'all were like, okay, just stop. And then finally we got to the one where Stacy was like, ding, 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 whatever she said, chicken dinner, winner, winner, chicken dinner, whatever she said. And like, okay, finally we found one that seemed to work. Okay, that's what you have to do if you care about truth. If you don't, well, yeah, there's plenty of places. I'll give you a 34-minute sermon and you'll be fine. Okay, but I'm sorry. that You can't fix this problem in 34 minutes. You can't. There's no way. There's just no way. This is, this is complicated stuff. And, we, and you should care because it deals with what? Eternity, <laughs> judgment. This is not like, well, we can disagree on this, you know. Should, should we have a kitchen in a church or not a kitchen in a church? That's a different, that's, that's, a, that's not as important as this, okay? I could argue in 1 Corinthians that we shouldn't, but that's a whole different point, okay? Right, I think I could prove that point because he told them all to go home and eat, but that's, you know, you know it's just scripture, who cares, right? right? He didn't mean that. We can always determine what he means, right? Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, I pray that we would all leave here at least convicted that we've all been given the same thing. And Lord, each one in this room has used what they have been given differently. And we are all going to have to give an account. Now, what occurs when we give that account may be up to debate amongst Christians, but we all have to agree we're going to give an account. And I pray that we would think about what would happen if that was to happen today. I pray we would give this great consideration and you forgive us where we have failed you and help us understand the truth of your judgment more clear as we continue on. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...